0: Well, let me begin by saying good morning again and welcome to worship, but now not only welcome to those of you who are here in our contemporary service, but welcome also especially to those of you who are joining us right now in our traditional service and online and via broadcast, and I'm really glad that you're here. I'm really glad that all of us are here together to learn and grow in Christ together. we have got something really important that I wanna to talk to you about this morning. Today is a day that we're kind of bringing to a head about a year-long process in the life of our church family that we have called Vision 2020, It's been about a nine to 12 month process so far and we're not done yet. Where we've been praying and talking together and dreaming together and asking what's next for us? God, what's next for us as a a church family? And if you've been a part of First Lutheran at all over the past year or so, I hope you've had some connection to this process that you've been involved in this at one level or another. A few months ago, back end of January, beginning of February, we celebrated our 125th anniversary as a church. It was a great time to look back and see the amazing things that God has done in our church family, we also began to look forward and say, what's next for us? What's God dreaming in us next? And some of you maybe remember, if you were here that morning, you had to fill out a card that looked like this one. It said, Vision 2020. I've got hundreds and hundreds of these on my desk in my office that have records of some of the dreams that God was stirring up in you. And I've, been re- I've read all these things more than once and prayed over these, so have our leadership teams. And we're at a place right now where I kind of want to bring this up to a little bit of a, not a conclusion, but come to a turning point where we talk about what God's been stirring up in this process for us. But what I want to tell you about this morning is actually more important than simply what I and others believe God and what we together are dreaming up that God wants to do next in us. I want to talk to you about something that's actually more important than the things that we are going to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of our collected hours working toward. I want to start with something that I think is more important than the things that we collectively, together as a church, are going to spend millions of budget dollars to pursue over the course of the coming year. I don't want to just talk to you about what I think we're going to do next, but who are we going to be what kind of community, what kind of, char- what kind of character of people is God creating us to be? Let me start by just giving you kind of an individual human illustration of the distinction I'm making to get us started. Now, I have two kids, and imagine if you asked me to tell you about my kids. I, in particular, I want to tell you about my daughter. I have a, I have a nine-year-old daughter named Evangeline, and evan- imagine if I was trying to tell you about Evangeline. I could start, by the way, I asked her ahead of time if I could share this with you, just so you know, and even though she said no, I'm still gonna. No, just kidding, just kidding. I asked her, she said yes. So imagine if I, in fact, when I asked her, I said, honey, is it okay if I tell a story about you tomorrow? Is that okay? Is it about something I did wrong? I'm like, no, no, not at all. No, it's okay. So if I wanted to tell you about Evangeline, I could tell you about her activities, I could tell you that she plays the violin and that she loves to read and write and she loves to do little crafty things that I don't understand at all and that she loves these kind of activities. And if I told you about those things, uh, and that she loves to swim also, if I told you those things, you might get a little picture of kind of how she spends her time, what she's like. But I bet that you would probably also in your mind just automatically start like connecting the dots and thinking like, oh, that means she's good at this or she likes that or whatever. So another way to do this would be that I could like tell you about her gifts, right? So I could tell you that she's she's very she had a very musical ear. She can hear a song and then go play it on the violin, which is just freaky to me. She does not get that from me. She gets it from that lady down there, from my wife. Uh, she can do that. She's very literary. She has a real gift for words and language, and so that's really fun. And uh, that's she also is physically pretty graceful and coordinated. And when you watch her in her swimming, like that's pretty obvious. And if we talk about somebody's gifts, you know, you get a sense for a little bit of who they are, and maybe in that way. You also start to get a little bit different kind of picture, a little bit of the beginning of a picture of what that person, maybe what my daughter might be like or be doing down the road 10 years, 20 years from now. Or I could go all the way down to the level of the values that she owns and aspires to. And so I could tell you that she has a real high value on people feeling included, people not being left out. And it just, it just breaks her little nine-year-old heart. <laughs> when somebody gets excluded and left out from something. And I could tell you that she really seems to come alive and thrive in like close, quiet friendships and sometimes she has a classmate or two over and they'll just spend hours playing with dolls or making little things and she just, she really seems to have a value on that kind of connection with people. And I could tell you that she owns and aspires to a value on real high levels of personal honesty. And there is a level of aspiration in this also actually. And when she recognizes that she has been dishonest in some way, deceptive in some way, that really hurts her. And I know that we're gonna spend hours late at night talking about that together, because she's gonna wanna process that with me. Now if I tell you things like that about her, now I think we're really getting down to the level of identity stuff, you know? And I think that when we know that about really anybody, man, now we know something even more important about who's that person gonna be 10 years from now. 20 years from now, because that's the level of stuff that really drives everything else. And so today I wanna talk to you to bring this back to the level of us as a church family, not just about the level of our activities, though that's really important, Yet we're not only gonna talk about the, uh, the ministries we have for children and students and adults and seniors or outreach and service activities or international partnerships. Those things are really important. I don't mean to imply that they're not. I mean, that's, that's how we spend our time and our energy and our money together. It's where the rubber meets the road on the way that we actually live life together. But a, another level below that would be talking about our gifts. You know, God has equipped this congregation and other churches in different ways. Not every church has all the same strengths and weaknesses and gifts and character. And that's not only okay, that's good. God uses different kinds of churches to reach and serve his whole world in different ways. And it's important for us to understand and a lot of what actually has come out of the last nine to 12 months as we've shared dreams and thoughts with each other has been a recognition of our own gifts, what makes us unique and that's really important. But another level below that is the question of what are the values that we own? And what are the values we aspire to? And not just those that are general to us as followers of Jesus Christ, but even particularly the the personality and character of this church family that he's put together. And I wanna talk to you about that this week and in the coming three weeks. But to get there, we have to start somewhere else. To start that conversation, I wanna start by telling you a story of something that happened in the life of Jesus. It's one of my favorite scenes. In fact, there actually are a number of scenes like this in his life. And if you've been a part of First Truth in the past, you've probably heard me talk about these moments before because I think they're so important for understanding Jesus and what he was up to and what he does in our lives now. One thing you may have heard me say before, if you've been here before, is that Jesus is infamous. He was infamous for eating with the wrong kind of people. He's always getting in trouble for having dinner with the people he wasn't supposed to have dinner with. Jesus ate with sinners When I was in graduate school, one of the most influential professors uh, in my studies was a guy who was a New Testament expert. He didn't actually believe in God or follow Jesus, but for some reason he liked first century history. And he would say, you know, the one thing I'm really sure about with Jesus is that he ate with sinners. This is like Jesus was infamous for this. And he got in trouble for this with other good religious people. like you, Because they were always thinking, Jesus, you shouldn't eat. With those people. You're just, you're making them feel included when they're not really included. You're sending off all the wrong kind of messages. And throughout Jesus' life, there's different scenes where like Pharisees or other religious leaders would want to know, why are you doing that? And they're so frustrated by it. And sometimes they would ask Jesus, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? But I suppose they eventually got tired of Jesus' answers because in other scenes, they ask his disciples, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then in the scene I want to tell you about today, they're actually kind of done asking, though I think the asking is really important. But what they say in the scene that I want to tell you about today is simply complaint. (laughs) They just go, oh, this man eats with tax collectors and sinners. They're just mad about it. So Jesus has to tell them a story. He's like, look, you've been asking, you want to know, why do I value what I value? Why am I committed to act in the way that I am committed to act? Let me tell you a story. And in fact, Jesus told three stories. Two of them are real short and one is much longer. First, he says, he invites them to imagine that there is somebody who has a hundred sheep. And by the way, I was in Israel a few months ago and I saw the remains of some ancient sheep pens. They'd have been real crowded with a hundred sheep. This is a lot of sheep. This guy had a whole lot of sheep. He's out there in the fields with his sheep, probably counting them all the time during the day and make sure all of his sheep are still there. I hear sheep wander off from time to time. So he's counting his sheep. One time they're going through a pass and he counts up and he only gets 99, and so I imagine he must have like run ahead and like count again. Did I count right? 99 again this time. And then Jesus asks them a question who's asked, who are challenging him. He says, wouldn't you leave the other 99 in the field and go in search of the one that was lost? I don't know. I don't know whether I would or not. That's 99 sheep that are being put at risk. This shepherd must really, really care about that lost sheep. He goes out and he looks for it. He eventually finds it. He's looked under behind every rock in every shade behind a tree where you can't see very well, down in the crevices in the hilly terrain where the sheep might've gotten hurt. And he finds the sheep and he gets the sheep back to the other 99. But he doesn't like herd the sheep back to the 99. It's my favorite little detail of the story. He doesn't like whip the sheep back to the 99. He picks the sheep up, Jesus says, on his shoulders. I've never carried a sheep. Some of you maybe have. I imagine they're not light. They don't smell great. He takes the sheep and he wraps it around his neck back here and he carries the sheep back to the 99. And then when he gets back to the 99, what does he do? Does he beat the sheep? Does he scold the sheep? Now Jesus says he goes and he calls all his neighbors and he's like, hey, come rejoice with me. Now shepherds don't have neighbors very nearby, right? I mean, he had to go traveling around. Come rejoice with me because one of my hundred sheep, 1% of my sheep were lost and I've got it back and I'm thrilled, come celebrate with me. And he imagines, he assumes that everybody else is gonna be just as happy about him finding his lost sheep as he is. And then Jesus turns to the people, asked him this question, and he goes, listen, truly I tell you, there is more rejoicing in heaven God and the angels are throwing a bigger party. There's more rejoicing in heaven when one lost sheep is found, when one sinner repents, when one person who's far from God comes home than when the 99 who are already in the sheepfold are still there. It's just rejoicing. And I don't know everybody's life story in this room. You know some of mine, not all of it. But maybe you feel like there's some lost sheep like in your background, that that's been part of your story. Maybe you feel like there's some lost sheep that's actually not all that far away in your background. It's still right here with you. If that's you, you know, when Jesus answered that question, when Jesus answered that challenge, he was answering the Pharisees, but he had another audience. There were people at his table with him who were being reminded by the Pharisees that they didn't belong there. And Jesus had words for them too. He told this story for both audiences and he wanted them to know. And I think if you feel like there's lost sheep in your story, then I believe Jesus wants you to know. This is how God feels about you. He is not okay if you're lost in the field somewhere and he wants to come looking for you. You gotta know that God cares, that you matter to God, and he's on the hunt for you. He wants to bring you home, not to beat the sheep, not to scold the sheep, but to throw a party. And then Jesus tells another story. He says also, think about it like this. There was a woman who had 10 coins, right? Not 100 anymore, but 10, every one of them is 10 times more precious than last time and imagine she loses one of these coins and won't she jesus says light a lamp so remember this is nighttime right won't she light the lamp which in the first century doesn't mean doing something like this right that don't work She had to like go light the torches, get fire, go all over the house. Maybe she had to look outside around the house. She said she swept the house. She cleaned it up. She picked up the big recliner sofa in the middle of her first century room. She looked under there to find it. Finally, she finds the coin. She was heartbroken. Now her heart is high. She's rejoicing. She goes outside to call her friends. She tried to like Facebook them first, but they wouldn't answer. So she has to go door to door. She knocks on the doors and says, come rejoice with me. And remember what time it was? It's not the daytime, right? It's dark out. It's nighttime. And she thinks that in the middle of the night, she's so overcome with her own joy, she assumes everybody else will share her joy. And she says, come celebrate with me, for I found what was lost. And Jesus finishes his story. Remember, he's talking to two different audiences. He's got people at the table he's been having dinner with who are being told by the Pharisees, I don't know why Jesus has dinner with you. You're not worth it. He's talking to them, and he's answering the challenge at the same time. He says, listen to me, there is rejoicing in heaven. There is party going on in heaven every time one of God's lost people is found. And for the people who are at the table, I know Jesus wanted them to hear that. And for those of us who are gathered here and worship this morning, and you've ever wondered, I don't know, do I have any value? Am I part of God's valuable assets or not? Maybe I'm forgotten. Jesus wants each of us to know oh man, he's on the hunt for you. He will not rest. He won't go to bed at night. He won't wait till the morning and see if you turn up. But God is in the searching business. He's looking for you. And when you come back home again, man, there is rejoicing in heaven. And then Jesus told him a third story. He said there was this this man who had two sons. See, now we're not talking about 100 animals anymore. We're not talking about 10 coins, but people, children. This guy had two sons. One older son, one younger son. And the younger son comes to the father and he goes, Dad, I'd like you to split your property with me right now so I can take my half and go. Now, Bible scholars like to say that this would have been an offensive thing to do in the first century. That it would have been like telling your father, I wish you were dead, I'll just take your money. But I thought about this for a while. I'm still trying to figure out what century this would not be offensive in, right? Can you imagine if if I go to my father, one of you might have gone to your father's and go, you know what, i am kinda got my eye on the assets you're sitting on, and I don't really care so much about coming to see you at Christmas or calling you on your birthday or going on trips together or spending time together, but if you could part with my half of what's yours, you could just die now. That'd be okay with me, I'm gonna go. And somehow in Jesus' story, this father is unrealistically gracious, incredibly gracious, And he gives the son the assets. I don't know how much property he had to liquidate to put that in cash. But the son gets together all he has, Jesus says, a few days later. He gets together all he has, and he travels to the far country. Now, in Jesus' context, the words far country are like code for the bad place. (laughs) Like he's going away to a faraway place where the people there, they don't know or honor God They don't live according to the ways that God has taught his people. And he goes away to the far country. And once he get there, oh man, he starts living it up because he's loaded. He's got all kinds of resources. His father back at home was a wealthy landowner who had servants, so half of that was a good deal. So he takes off and he starts partying hard. Pretty soon the balance is going down. And it's going down, but he's not checking the statements anymore because he do not want to see that. The balance is going down and pretty soon he's all out of money. And as soon as he was all out of money, he was all out of friends. And then he figures, I gotta get a job, I gotta do something, I need some money. So he hires himself out to a pig farmer and he starts feeding pigs. Now you gotta know, that sounds gross enough to any of us. But to a person, a Jewish person, that's like the lowest to low. Pigs were unclean animals to them. And so this is like he's saying, I'm gonna leave my morals behind. I'm gonna leave my culture and my identity and my customs behind. I'm gonna leave my God behind. And when I get up in the morning, I imagine he got up, and they actually had kind of like mirror-like things in the first century, I don't know if you knew that. He'd get up in the mirror, look in the mirror, and go, I don't even know who that guy is anymore. I mean, sometimes rock bottom is hard, even if it's a muddy piggy bottom, right? (laughs) He goes down and he hits rock bottom, and he's hungry. He can't find any food. There's a famine in the land to make matters worse. He wants to eat the pig food, and then it dawns on him. He comes to his senses, I can't get any lower than this, and he thinks, I'm starving over here. Here I am starving to death and I know back home at my dad's place, even the servants back there, they got plenty of food. They may just be working for my dad. They may be feeding his animals, not pigs. They may be feeding his animals, but at least they got food. I'm gonna see if I can go home again. And so he starts practicing a little speech in his head. Jesus said this is what he prepared himself to say. Father, I've sinned. sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, I imagine in his head he's probably thinking his dad laughs at that point. Yeah, you're right, you're not. Sin against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy because your son. But just make me like one of your hired servants. Just, if you would take me back and let me like, sleep in the servants' quarters, just let me bunk out there, and if I could come to the meals when they come out, that's all I really feel like I could ask for. So he packs up if he's got anything left, and he starts walking back home. And I don't know how far it was back. Jesus just said he went to the far country, so I'm sure it was several days' walk at least. As he's walking back, he's probably rehearsing his speech in his mind, right? Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You you repeat that stuff over and over again. It just reinforces that identity, right? Father, I've sinned, I've sinned, I've sinned. That's what he's done. I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He knew it, and he just kept repeating it. He's playing those tapes in his head. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he finally gets back home again, and he gets to the long road that leads up to the house, to the estate up there, And just as he starts to walk up that long road, he looks and he sees a large man running toward him. And I wonder what his heart thought in that moment. Did he go, oh man, I'm in worse trouble than I thought. Like he's not even gonna let me cross the property line. He's gonna meet me all the way out here and shove me back out. And then he sees that it's his father who's running. And he sees tears running down his cheeks. He's just weeping. And his arms, they don't end in closed fists but they're open. And his father runs into him, bowls into him, throws his arms around him. And he's just weeping, you know. And that boy's got to be overwhelmed. I mean, would, would you be speechless in that moment? Just, what do you say? What do you say? Fortunately, he'd been practicing. So he starts his rehearsed speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his father cuts him off. Before his father says any of the words that Jesus tells us that he said, I just imagine that maybe the first thing out of his mouth was, Shh. and then he yells to his servants. He's like, go, go get my robe. You know the robe that, that I wear, that, that my family wears? Would you bring it and let's put it on his shoulders? And look, look—he's barefoot. he's barefoot. He's got no shoes on his feet. He looks like a pig farmer. Can we get the sandals that people in my family wear? Let's put sandals on his feet and go get my ring, my signet ring that is the sign of financial transactions. And I'm going to give him the authority again that a son in my family would have. Let's go put a ring on his finger. And then he yells over to the guy who keeps the animals, not the pigs, but the animals. And he says, let's go get the fatted calf that we've been fattening up and saving for a moment just like this. Let's kill the fatted calf and celebrate. We have a feast because my son is home again. They go into the house and they begin to celebrate. But the man had two sons. There was an older son who's out in the field, still working out there. And he heard the music and the dancing. And one of the servants is out there and the servant told him what it was all about. He said, your brother came home again. But the the older brother was like, who? What? I'm not going in to celebrate that. And the father's in there at the banquet, and Jesus doesn't say how long he was at the banquet before he realized that his oldest son, who should have been sitting in the chair right next to him at dinner, who should have been sitting there for the honor of his father, did not come in to honor his father either. And so the father, who already disgraced himself by running down the road to his younger son, he doesn't care. He'll disgrace himself to go out to his older son because he loves his kids too much to worry about that. So he goes out into the field with his older son, and he's like, you gotta come in. He pleads with them. I mean, imagine this wealthy, established father was willing to lower himself to plead with his son. I'm inviting you. Come on into the party. And the older son goes, seriously? You mean this son of yours who took half our property, ruined our family name, went out there, squandered it on God knows what, wrecked his life, ruined our reputation, and now he's back to do it again and you're gonna celebrate him? No thanks, pops. You go ahead and have a party. I'm staying out here. And the father's like, oh, your brother, your brother. It's like he was lost, and now he's found. He was dead, and now he's alive. We have to celebrate and be glad. Come on in. And the story ends right there. That's the end of the story. We learn a lot of things from these stories. We learn that God treasures precious lost children of his. We learn that they are valuable to him, that every person, everybody, all people matter to God. We learn that God, if, if he's out in the field and he's taking care of 99% of his assets, cares so much about one that he'll go out and search wherever he can. That if he's got a coin lost in the middle of the night, he can't sleep at night. He's not gonna wait until morning and go, hey, it's okay, the sun will shine in. Daylight will make all this better. He's not gonna wait till the coin comes wandering back. He's gonna light a lamp in the middle of the night, sweep the house, pick up the sofa. And when he finds it, not only does he care so much that he'll search. God is in the searching business. But when he finds again, he rejoices. It's party time. God's heart is broken for those who are lost and lifted when others are found. We know that he celebrates. And that's where the first two stories end, right? The guy who found the sheep, he throws the party. The woman who found the coin, she throws the party. But in the third story, we learn one more thing about God from these stories. We learn that God not only rejoices when the lost are found, but that he desires He craves, it's God's will to create a family that shares his heart. He wants his children to share his heart, the heart of the father. We know that God goes out searching after all that are lost. He wants us to share his heart that goes out searching for lost coins, seeking for lost sheep, running out to lost children, no matter how they're lost. Notice I didn't say no matter how lost they are. I said, no matter how they're lost, because there's more than one way to be lost, right? There's out in the far country lost, and there's right here at home, but refusing to share the joy of the father lost. And the father runs out to us wherever we are. He comes out to find us where we are and invites us to share his heart. And he ends that third story with that question. There's a reason he leaves that third story open-ended, Remember, he's he's talking to the people at the table with him. He wants them to know that they belong there, that they're precious to him and to God. But now he's got to turn it around on the Pharisees who are challenging him. They want to know, why do you value what you value? Why are you so committed to act in the frustrating way that you seem committed to act? And Jesus answered that question. Here's why I value what I value. Here's why I'm committed to act this way. It's because God is like this. But now he turns it around and he goes, why aren't you Why don't you value lost people? Why aren't you committed to act on behalf of those who are far from God? Because that's what God is doing. I'm gonna do what God is doing. I'll do what the Father is doing. Won't you? And i tell you this story at this moment in the life of our church family together in order to make this point, that this is also the answer to our why. Why do we value what we value? We value what we value because of this, because of the heart of the Father. Everything we do goes back here. This is why we program the ministry programs that we program, because of the heart of the Father. It's why we activate the activities that we activate, because of the heart of the Father. Why have we built the buildings that we have built over however many years we've done that? And by the way, we're sitting in about three of them right now over the course of this morning. It all goes back here. It all goes back to the heart of the Father, who runs after his lost children, no matter how they're lost, and Jesus who says, this is what God is like. This is the heart of the Father for you, and this is the heart of the Father that God asks you to share. Now, probably more than any message I've ever shared before, I think, this one is really just the beginning. I feel like this is really just the introduction. This is the groundwork for the next three weeks that we're gonna share together. In in this four-week series, I wanna share with you in the next weeks some very specific values that I think God has created in our church family that arise from stories like this, that arise from the heart of God. And not not even just the general character of followers of Jesus who learn to run like God runs, but also the particular character of his heart, let's say the fingerprint that goes with this heart for this family, if you will, and over the course of these weeks, I wanna share with you some stories. I'll bring, with you, I'll bring with me some testimonies and some videos and some stories of people who are a part of this church family who are gonna share with you how they've experienced these values in their own life and how God is challenging them to own and honor and aspire to the practice of these values. And then over the course of these weeks as we talk about these things, I'm also gonna give us another opportunity, a challenge and an opportunity to dream together, to ask together, man, if these are the values God has created in us and this is the heart of the Father, what kind of people are we gonna be that honors those values? What are we gonna to do to grow in those values? So I wanna invite you to do two things in this week between following this Sunday. And they're really, I even hesitate to call them action steps because they're more like preparation steps because we're all in kind of in one journey together right now. The first one is this. I'd love it if you would find a way to read these stories that Jesus told yourself this week, these stories that are so revealing of the heart of the Father and the values of Jesus and why he did what he did. They're found in the Bible in Luke 15. And if you don't have a Bible, you can, if if you have a Bible, read your Bible. Read it every day this week, that chapter, read it like twice a day, whatever, as many as you can do. If you have your own Bible, great. If you don't, you can go to our front desk out there. They have Bibles there, you can buy one from them. If you don't have money, they'll give you one. And if you can't find Luke 15, they'll put a bookmark in it for you. I'd love for you to be able to read these stories and let what Jesus said about the heart of the Father just sort of drip and seep into your heart this week. And then the second thing I wanna invite you to do is don't miss next week. Don't miss the rest of this series because this is really all one piece and I believe that God is creating a, just a powerful future for us in him, in the power of his spirit as a family together. And the key word here is Together. I think God has plans for us and dreams for us. And I want to take these steps together and prepare our hearts for this together so that as we take the steps forward, we can take those steps forward together. So I want to invite you to be a part of that. And and if you have to travel to like Indonesia or something like next week, then uh, flcwb.org. All right, just follow along. I want to make sure we we stick together. Now, usually at the end of a message, I lead us just in a brief time of prayer. But today I want to just pray together a little differently. Uh, I want to Join our voices together in a prayer. And if we could put that prayer up on the screens right now. This is a prayer that I use in some seasons of my life. And I want us just to pray this prayer in our voices together. So I'll read it to you one time, and then let's pray it out loud together. So it says, God, do what you need to do in us so that you can do what you want to do through us. Amen. All right, let's pray together. God, do what you need to do in us so that you can do what you want to do through us. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen.